Good morning, Alex and friends. I'm Connie. Today is Saturday, August 12th, 2023, and you're listening to Alex's News. With temperatures rising up to 90.7 degrees and lowering to a comfortable 66.9 degrees later today in Riverside, it looks like a hot summer's day ahead for all of us. But the forecast isn't the only thing heating up. On today's episode, we'll delve into some troubling news about a rising tide of violent threats facing our public officials. This deep-seated issue is growing in the shadows, and experts are becoming increasingly concerned as the 2024 election looms closer. Another critical bulletin today is the recent failure of communication systems in Maui, leading to an unfortunate situation of chaos and confusion amidst deadly wildfires. We will be talking to survivors and observers, seeking answers and analyzing what went wrong. On the financial front, groundbreaking news surfaces as former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is sent to hard jail time. His bail has been revoked amidst alarming witness tampering claims. And on a lighter note, let's switch gears a bit. The National Kid Mullet Contest has unveiled its top 25 finalists. Get ready to admire or cringe at some of the longest and wildest hairdos you've ever seen. Stay tuned for these stories and more on today's edition of Alex's News. Turning now to our top story of the day. As we inch closer to the 2024 election, we're seeing an unsettling rise in violent threats against public officials across America. To help us better understand what we are dealing with, we've invited Elias to discuss the issue at hand. Elias, bring us up to speed on the current situation. Well, Connie... It's as alarming as it sounds. The intensity of threats against public officials is escalating to unprecedented levels. And it's not just federal officials being targeted. Local officials, especially women, are also disproportionately impacted. The fatal shooting of a Utah man who threatened to assassinate President Joe Biden is a grave example of how extreme these threats have become. These threats seem to be spiking during periods of crisis or major news events. That's worrisome indeed, Elias. What factors are contributing to this rise, and how are law enforcement agencies responding? Several interconnected elements are at play here, Connie. Firstly, social media platforms are making it easier for individuals to publicize these threats. Simultaneously, cultural normalization of violence in political discourse is feeding into this alarming trend. Secondly, law enforcement agencies have shifted their focus more onto domestic extremism due to this rise. But the criticism here is that response towards organized right-wing violence has been rather slow. That's quite alarming, Elias. How are these threats distributed across the political spectrum? While the majority of political extremism-related murders in the U.S. are committed by right-wing actors, it's important to note that these threats can and do come from both sides of the political spectrum. The number of arrests for such threats has been increasing, but it's still a relatively small fraction compared to the overall population. With President Trump's upcoming trials and the 2024 election campaign, experts are warning about an escalation in rhetoric leading potentially to violence. What risk factors are at the forefront? Experts are particularly concerned about lone attackers acting impulsively, Connie. They caution that the combination of the upcoming election, intensified political rhetoric, mistrust and misunderstanding, 
across political factions, and the amplification of threatening messages via social media platforms can create a dangerous cocktail that can explode at any time. It's certainly a high-stakes situation, Elias. What are the potential remedies or strategies being proposed to alleviate this threat? The consensus among experts is that promoting understanding across political factions is crucial in mitigating the risks. Dispelling misconceptions and divisive narratives could help to decrease the chances of violence and protect the health of American democracy. Indeed, Elias, that's a hefty task at hand. Thanks for bringing us this vital though troubling analysis. The information we discussed came from trusted sources, including ABC News, National Public Radio, and the Associated Press. You're welcome, Connie. It's a tough subject, but awareness and understanding are the first steps towards addressing it. We're moving on to story two of today's podcast. Right now, we're discussing some grave developments out of Lahaina, Maui County, where deadly wildfires have swept across the town. Our own Grace has been closely following the situation. Grace, what more can you tell us about these wildfires? Well, Connie, the situation is quite congested. Chaos reigned as the failure of communication systems exacerbated the devastation caused by the fires. According to Associated Press, county officials failed to activate sirens that would have warned residents of the approaching flames. Instead, their primary method of communication was posting on social media platforms, which reached a significantly smaller portion of the public. Wait, surely they have a more developed system of alerting the public? One would think so, especially in a state known for its elaborate emergency warning system. ABC News highlights the same points. The power and cellular outages compounded communication issues. Without sufficient information, residents found themselves face-to-face -face with the fire. And this lack of communication made residents' evacuation efforts difficult, I imagine? Unfortunately, you're right. Roadblocks forced evacuees onto a narrow downtown street, creating a bottleneck that was quickly overcome by the flames. With the death toll reaching at least 80 people, questions are being raised about the adequacy of public alert systems. Hawaii's Attorney General lends weight to these concerns with a planned comprehensive review of decision-making and policies regarding the wildfires. The death toll and implications of these tragedies are nearly incomprehensible. What's the current standing count? Another report confirmed the current death toll at 67, with evacuations still occurring due to ongoing fires. Contradicting previous reports, this article does note that sirens were not activated during the Lahaina wildfires. This failure led to confusion and a profound feeling of inadequacy among residents who believe they were not sufficiently warned. It's certainly a paradox, isn't it? A state known for its robust emergency warning system, failing to alert its residents in the time of dire need. Have there been any speculations regarding the consequences? NBC News reports that the absence of siren activation is under scrutiny. Survivors claim that warnings were insufficient, resulting in at least 67 deaths. The reasons behind the decision not to activate the sirens have yet to be clarified, but an after-action report is expected to provide some answers. Has anyone stepped in to provide aid or support? Yes, several organizations are shouldering that responsibility. For instance, AT&T is providing relief and has deployed a portable cell site in Lahaina to ensure connectivity for first responders and wireless services for customers. The American Red Cross and World Central Kitchen are also providing support to those affected. 
How is this tragedy being perceived internationally? It's also making news abroad. The South China Morning Post reports that criticisms regarding official response and government abandonment are being expressed by residents. The Attorney General's ongoing investigation is expected to answer those concerns. This is incredibly tragic. Any idea as to why the wildfires were so deadly? Hawaii is home to 44% of the country's endangered and threatened plant life, which makes the fires much more deadly. This, combined with the weather effects of climate change, resulted in what is said to be the largest natural disaster in Hawaii's history. Thank you for covering this deeply unsettling news, Grace. Our hearts go out to those who have been devastated by this disaster. Agreed, Connie. Community support will be paramount as Lahaina navigates this tragedy. Moving on to our third story for the day, we turn to some significant developments in the financial world. Former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, once a leading figure in the cryptocurrency community, has been ordered to jail as he faces fraud charges. Ethan, you're our specialist correspondent on this. Can you walk us through what happened? Absolutely, Connie. So, Bankman-Fried had been living under house arrest in Palo Alto, California. He posted a $250 million bond following his arrest in December, but things have escalated sharply. Prosecutors have accused him of witness tampering by allegedly leaking the private diary entries of his former girlfriend who is also expected to testify against him in his trial. Just to be clear, this has sparked an intense legal battle. Tell us more about these witness tampering allegations. Well, prosecutors argue that Bankman Fried was trying to influence witness testimonies, hoping to swing the case in his favor. Evidence of this, they say, is that Bankman Fried had disclosed sensitive documents to members of the press, which potentially violated his bail conditions. The judge presiding over the case ultimately agreed with the prosecution and made the drastic move of revoking his bail, as reported by NPR in the New York Times. That sounds like a high-stakes move. What might this mean for Bankman Fried's upcoming trial? Connie, it's not a good look. With the judge's decision to revoke his bail, Bankman Fried will have to remain in jail until his trial, which is scheduled to begin on October 2nd. This move is seen as a pretty strong signal that allegations of manipulation aren't taken lightly in court. Bankman Fried's legal representatives have since appealed this decision. And what was the nature of the original fraud charges? Good question. Bankman Fried was accused of defrauding investors and allegedly diverting millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrency from his FTX exchange platform, leading to its collapse. His actions are suspected to have resulted in significant investor losses. Judging by reports from PBS NewsHour and CNBC, this has been a highly complex and high-profile case. The way Bankman Fried communicated with the press is also an interesting aspect of this, isn't it? Definitely, Connie. According to information reported by CNBC, we know that the defense claimed Bankman Fried's conversations with the media were an exercise of his First Amendment rights and didn't violate his bail terms. It's a fine line to walk, though, as the government alleges that Bankman Fried used this access to the press as a tool for what they describe as indirect witness intimidation. Sounds like it's only going to get more intense. Are there any other peculiar aspects to this story? It's fascinating you mention that, Connie. Latest reports suggest that the SEC alleges that about 90 U.S. investors were defrauded to the tune of over $1.1 billion through Bankman Fried's cryptocurrency platform. Add to that a Hollywood project in the works is reported by Deadline Film Plus TV, and we could be seeing a lot more of this story in different forms.
Sounds like we'll be hearing more about this in the future. Thank you for that detailed rundown, Ethan. You're welcome, Connie. So, rounding out our fourth and final story, the National Kid Mullet Contest is back, with this year's haircuts being more creative and wild than ever before. On the back of this, joining us this morning is our very own Chloe to give us a breakdown. Hi, Chloe. A kid mullet contest must be a sight to see. Hi, Connie. Yes, it's quite intriguing. Over 900 children, aged between 1 and 12, lined up to show off their unique interpretations of the classic 80s haircut, the mullet. NPR reported that the finalists would be announced next week, with the first-place winner bagging $5,000 and the coveted trophy. That is fascinating, Chloe. With so many youngsters involved, what's the main aim of this quirky contest? Well, Connie, the annual USA Mullet Championship goes beyond celebrating an era's trademark style. It serves as a fundraiser for Jared Allen's Homes for Wounded Warriors, a much-needed nonprofit that delivers accessible, mortgage-free homes to military veterans in need. That's a great cause indeed. Can you tell us a little more about the notable competitors in this year's kids category? Sure thing. An array of talented youngsters, such as Ezekiel Arita from Hawaii and Eli Powell from Kansas, have made notable impacts. We also have Nash Carroll from Louisiana, Dalton Ellis from Nebraska, Owen Escoto from Tennessee, and Mason Padilla from California. Each has a distinctive approach to their mullet hairstyle, which they proudly displayed for the competition. It surely sounds like a house full of talent. With competitors from all over the nation, it must be hard to track each one of the participants, right? True, Connie. However, many local news outlets have done a fantastic job spotlighting their homegrown mulleteers. For example, Wisconsin's WEAU highlighted nine-year-old Emmett Bailey, nicknamed Mullet Boy, and reigning USA Mullet Champ, who's back to vie for the title again. Exciting! And everyone involved gets a chance to support veterans across the nation? Absolutely, Connie. Another participant that caught my attention is 10-year-old Emmett Hare from Michigan. Growing his haircut for nearly 20 months, Emmett chose Jared Allen's Homes for Wounded Warriors as his charity of choice, a move that re-emphasizes the charitable aspect of the contest. That's truly noble. Any other notable contestants, Chloe? Yes, let's not forget six-year-old Rory Ehrlich from Pennsylvania. He proudly wears his mullet in every facet of his life, whether he's on the baseball field or cheering on his local sports teams. Lastly, Chloe, can we expect greater things from this year's contest? Certainly. We already know that the USA Mullet Championships have cumulatively raised over $113,000 for institutions like Wounded Warriors. This competition is not just about unique hairstyles or childhood nostalgia. It's about a community rallying together, rallying for our veterans. Absolutely, Chloe. It's fascinating to see such a fun and nostalgic event being used to support a noble cause. Thanks, Chloe, for highlighting the beautiful and hopeful side of this contest. My pleasure, Connie. That's all we have for now. Today's episode was made by Alexander King with GPT-4, GPT-3.5 Turbo, 11 Labs, and the Google Cloud Text-to-Speech API. I hope you have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow, Alex.